Welcome to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast all about stories of safety leadership presented by Dale Carnegie and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. Here are your hosts, Merle Heckman and Mike Palmer. Mike, what a treat we've got coming forward today, Chris Jeter. You've known him for a long time. What should people be watching for today? Well, I'll tell you, Chris did not disappoint. I've known Chris for over 20 years, and exactly what I think of Chris is his passion and his why, and the why for it. And we heard his whole story with that, his origin of how it all started and how he first built that, which I didn't even know about, and then how he's used that to fuel him. Man, I'm so excited for the audience to listen to this, and let's just roll it. Let's get going. Good morning. And our guest today is Chris Jeter. Chris is the regional safety manager for Amazon, and I've had the pleasure of knowing Chris since the early 2000s and have worked with him as he's developed in his career. I asked him, and he graciously volunteered to be a guest today because when I see Chris and, and what he has done, I've always been impressed by his ability to go through different types of organizations and different types of industries and really distinguish himself as a real leader in safety. So I'm really, really excited. And Chris, thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So Chris, we often find that safety professionals have what we would call an origin story. What really propelled them into to want to be in safety. So I'd like to hear a bit about your, that story of yours and how that has helped guide your leadership style and your leadership ways of being. Okay. Yeah. So, and I'll tell this story a little bit backwards because to be quite honest, I didn't realize my, my purpose for being in safety until several years into my career. And it wasn't until some, some time of self-reflection that I was able to, to put my finger on, on why I was in this business and what compelled me to want to be in this business and to stay in it. And um, certainly once I figured out what my purpose was, the motivation and the desire to continue this career in this career field was even higher. I don't remember exactly when, but I was probably 10 years, maybe a little bit more into my career in safety. And I wasn't really sure why I was in it. And I was thinking about, do I want to continue this? Do I want to do something else, et cetera. And then going through some old things that I had um, in a closet, right? We were doing some clean out and I found some newspapers that my mother had given me from from when my father got killed in 1978. Now, in fact, it was Valentine's Day, 1978. And how old were you? I was uh, just before my seventh birthday, and um, is when it was when that occurred. And so, there was a moment that you know sometimes you have these moments in life where something just clicks. And I knew when I was coming out of high school and kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up you know, that I wanted to help people. It was law enforcement, EMS, firefighting, something in that range where I always steered toward, right? And, and quite frankly, my original goal was to be in federal law enforcement. And um, that didn't work out. So I had volunteered. I, was, um, I had got my EMT certification. I was volunteering in a local life-saving crew. And I uh, was at the, uh, at the station one night, and, and a person called and said, hey, we, we, the company I'm working for needs somebody to help do drug tests and physicals. And I was working for an asbestos abatement contractor at the time. And I thought, well, that sounds easier, certainly a little less risky. Right. And um, so I went and interviewed and I got the job. And fortunately for me, 
I came into a situation where I had some really great people that said, this, Chris, this is not what you're going to do forever. You're not just going to do drug tests and physicals. And they started teaching me how to be a safety professional. Matter of fact, the person that who trained me, who took me into the field to start teaching me what a safety professional does is still one of my closest friends 33 years later. Nice. So something caught there. And then as I went through, I began to develop and I, you know, began to learn things and, and, you know, the technical knowledge was there and I became kind of a sponge to learn things. And I can remember in years past being able to tell you chapter and verse, what the OSHA standard said on any particular thing. Right now I'm just smart enough to remember that it's written down somewhere and I can go find it. And so <laughs> can't hold everything in there forever. Right. And, um, so again, go go forward in there for about 10 years. And then there was that moment where I saw the, the, the newspaper article with my father's car upside down where he ultimately lost his life. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to help people. I'm, so my purpose is to, to help people so that no other six-year-old sees their mother come in and say, your father's never coming home again. And that's when I think my career really in safety started to go to next level. And I really started thinking about what's this career field mean for me? And so... I've had the, the pleasure to work in a number of different industries, right? Construction, power, entertainment, et cetera. And, and all of them equally challenging in very different ways. But each of them has helped me grow as a safety professional as well, because it's, it's taught me many invaluable lessons that don't come from the books. And then it's also given me that ability to do everything we can to make sure that everybody goes home at the end of the day. Chris, when you saw those pictures and those newspaper clippings, what did that trigger in your mind and heart for the world of safety? Well, it's a great question, Merle. There's a couple of things that, that it triggers, right? One is is the how it happened. And um, that's the uncontrollable, right? Because the other driver is what caused the accident, right? Now, remember when I said this is 1978, and so my, my father also was not wearing seatbelts, which they weren't required to be worn in 1970. They weren't a law at that point in time. And so there's this feeling of, you know, I don't know how to say it. it, it it's just, you wanted to, as a, again, as a child, you wanted to do something to help and you, you couldn't. And this career field has given me the ability to help, at least in some way, right? That there's, there's we can do this, we can, we can institute a program, a process, we can go fix something in an environment. We can put, you know, let's be rudimentary basic here. We can put handrails up for the fall hazard, right? So that we can provide the protection that I wasn't able to do in my father's accident. And um, the interesting, I think there's a number of things as I reflect, because I continually reflect on that event, you know, is he was driving home. If you look at the statistics, we'll tell you that most vehicle accidents occur when a very close radius to your home. So that validated that. But um, on a road, he'd driven a hundred times. So very comfortable with where he was at, et cetera. And seatbelts just weren't a thing. Car goes over, he gets tossed about, and unfortunately succumbs to the injuries. However, my mother, sitting in the seat beside of him, wearing her seatbelt, unbuckles, crawls out of the car. And, um, and we had her for another 40 years past that event. And so, again, it's, it's, there's a thing, I think, in there that it's a story that, that comes from that of safety is not necessarily compliance. We have we have a compliance element. Right? We're, we're going to have things that we're going to do that we have to do because the law tells us we have to, right? And then we should, as organizations, we should all do that. But my mother wasn't compelled by the law to wear a seatbelt. She was compelled by risk. She mitigated that, right? And it, and it worked. So I think, you know, when I look at that, I, I, I just go back to there was something there that I couldn't control. And this, at least this industry, this profession gives me ability to help control that at least to some level. 
You know, Chris, your origin story tracks so much with uh, my experience with you over the past 20 or so years. And, and as it relates to this podcast, talk to us about how you take that passion, right? That why, that purpose, right? And then turn it into what drives you day to day from a leadership, like being, leading, you know, taking the mantle for safety from the employee level to the boardroom, right? And how do you transfer that passion and that direction to the people that you've got to convince? How do you do that? Oh, that's a big question. And um, but it's the right question, right? Because I think that from this profession's perspective, we are largely in a sales organization, right? Because what we're trying to do is convince others of why they need to do things. And it may be extremely counterintuitive to them, right? If you just think about the diversity of people, in any given workspace, especially in, in today's times, I mean, diversity of people in workplaces is just unlike anything we've ever seen. Well, if you just take those, be- the diversity of behaviors of those people, right? So there's going to be a group of people who, if they walked up to the edge of something and there was a 20 foot drop, they're going to go, nope, not me. And they're going the other direction, right? And then you're going to have that group of people that walk up and they go, oh, cool, 20 foot drop. So what can I do? And then there's going to be all these different groups in between there that are going to have different reactions to it. How do we convince all of those different groups of people, right? And I think that it starts with a why. Why am I here? I'm here for those people, all right? And whoever those people are, right? It's the people who are out doing what your organization is supposed to be doing, right? Whatever you're making, delivering, selling, whatever. That's why we're here, right? As a profession is to take care of those people. And if you think about it, the resource that every company has to have is the human resource, right? I think that's the centering piece on the hard days is you get back to the individuals and you go, that's why we're here and that's the purpose. And so focus and go do that. The other is, I think, just having those conversations with people and helping them understand the why, because even though if they don't agree with the why, if they understand it, there's a whole lot better chance that it's going to be accepted. Right. And and look, a number of people in workplaces, you can go cite the OSHA standards to them and that's fine and they don't care. I don't agree with a fall protection rule that says I have to tie off at six feet because I don't think it's a big risk. And then you can have a very different conversation of, well, okay, I understand where you're coming from. However, if you happen to fall from you and if you happen, and you can have that conversation with them, right? And understanding where they're at and then be able to talk to them in terms of themselves, not just regulatory speak, right? Because most people don't really care what the regulations say. That's what we care about, right? And that's what we're trying to make sure that we're meeting. But most people want to understand if I've got to do it, tell me why I've got to do it. And even if I don't agree with it, right, there's a better chance. So I think it's just being able to talk to people and understanding who they are versus group speak. I think that one from a professional perspective of on those days when it's not going well, frustration, et cetera, the centering piece is always coming back to people. And if you take that to the next step, it's meeting people where they are and having those conversations with them about why we're doing things the way that we're doing. Chris. One of the Dale Carnegie principles that we instruct when we teach the course is arouse in the other person an eager want. I heard you talk about there the idea that people are doing it because I have to, compliance. How did you find that you could got appeal to the want to, to where people, rather than just, I got to do it, how'd you get to that want to? How'd you arouse that? I think there's a very simple answer to this. Why are you here? Why, why are we coming to work? Most of us are not afforded the, the ability to, to not have to work in our lives. Some people are, and, and, and that's wonderful for them. Most people have to get up every day and go to work to provide, right? So what are you providing for? 
For some, it's wife, children, etc. Others, they may not be married. So maybe it's the new boat they want or the new thing, right? If I understand why they're there, then I can have a conversation with them of, you know, if you get hurt, it doesn't stop when you clock out. If these things happen, right, that, that goes with you. So the analogy that I've used for many, many years is because uh, I used to try to play golf and I was never really good at it. And I was like, so if you'd like to play golf, think about if you have a back injury. Are you going to be able to play golf this weekend? And depending on the level of the back injury, right? I mean, that may inhibit that for a period of years or, or even forever. And so that's where I try to ignite it is it's not so much of follow the rules, right? You can certainly have that conversation too, but it's more of why are you here? Right? So you want to take care of your wife, your children, or you have your hobby or your whatever. Okay. If you get hurt here, what impact is that going to have on what your passion is outside of here? Because most people are working for whatever their passion is outside of work. When I look at, you know, time I've known you in your career, and you can tell me whether I get this all right. Both you and I started in construction safety, right? So construction, man, every day that's got to build, right? They're so big on project schedule. It's unbelievable the pressure to try to integrate safety to the construction schedule, right? And it's got to get done. And utilities, man, the lights got to stay on, right? So you got to produce power. You've got to figure a way to integrate safety into producing power every single day, every single minute, right? Entertainment, the show's got to go on, right? So you had huge pressures there. And now you're with a company that has made a tremendous reputation of delivering a product to somebody in rapid time. Like they, when they hit buy on their computer, it's in your mailbox, <laughs> literally with almost minutes sometimes. It's crazy, right? So... From a safety aspect, from the challenge of leading safety in organizations where production is so, so important, talk to us about just that whole challenge of this, you know, production is such a priority and trying to integrate safety into that with the people that you're dealing with, with the leaders of those organizations. How do you do that? Well, I mean, as you were asking that question, I had this flood of memories that just came back into my mind of things that I had dealt with in, in multiple, throughout my career, right? that highlighted that challenge, right? And if I go back to the early stages of my career, right, to my, back in the construction days, starting in 1990, we as an industry didn't have a clue what we were doing at that point in time, right? And so we were still trying to figure out as an industry who we were. And a lot of the times our answers to anything was just no. We were going to grab our OSHA standard and we were going to compliance our way to being safe. And we got very rigid. And, we, and, and if you think about that, Every company has an output, whatever that output is, right? Is, is, and they, if they don't deliver that, then the viability of the organization becomes in question. And so to have someone in that organization who simply says the answer is no is not helpful, right? So if I have to say no, it's no but. Or if you want to be the more positive speaking person, you can say yes, if, right? We need to do this. No, you can't do it that way. However, if we do these things, we can get there. And so I think that's, Mike, where we come to the point of we as a profession will always understand the compliance element. Now I think we're better at understanding risk management and how do we go help the organization manage the risk to the lowest possible level and still be able to execute the functions of the organization. This has been several years ago, early 2000s timeframe years ago. So it's been a while. I was um, at a location and there was a fairly high risk activity that we needed to complete. And to the point, it was because we needed to be there for customers at the backside. So this is a back in the power days, right? So it was on a Saturday. 
and the uh, there was an issue with one of the components of on the unit, and and we had a plan, or we were building a plan to how we could fix that and still keep the unit online, right? So, which creates another level of hazard, right? Because you've got the unit online, and there's certain things you have to do. And would have been very easy for me to go, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. But it was one of those times in my career that I can remember where it was all locked arms with the right people, right? And the right people were the plant manager and the operations manager, et cetera, a number of. And then we had a contract organization that was doing the work for us. And um, so they were in the conversation. And we started talking about how to do this safely. And everybody spoke, right? Everybody spoke, and just me. Uh, actually, I probably spoke the least in that conversation. But at the end, we came up with a plan. We went and executed the plan. And we were able to do the work safely because all the parties were involved. And so I think, Mike, now it's coming to the table as a safety professional, as a safety leader. Some cases you may have to elbow your way into the table, and if you have to, that's fine. But you be there as a problem solver, not just a no person. And I think that's today, that's exactly how I operate is um, if I have to say no, and, and I have to from time to time, it's no but. And then we start talking through what we can do to safely achieve what we're trying to achieve. There are some safety professionals that are, you know, they charge hard and it's all about the safety part of it, right? But to be effective, what you really got to realize is the value of the company and the value of the organization, right? And, and then finding that compromise. And you just did a fantastic job of explaining of how you have to mesh those two together. I even heard, Chris, uh, a couple more Carnegie principles that you were putting into practice. Well, one of those is let the other person do a great deal of talking and let the other person feel like the idea is his or hers. How much of that, those principles, were you weaving in there to let them talk and let them feel like the ideas are theirs? I think a key point, and, and I'm, I'm so glad you, you, you brought that up because if you think about it, you know, there, there's a great analogy. And you, if you're on LinkedIn or any of the social media platforms, you know, you'll see this so often and it'll say something to the effect of if you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. Think about it from what we do. And Mike, think about just some of the challenges you and I've dealt with in our careers together. I mean, we've got some pretty good stories that we could tell for years, but who is the best person to talk about or answer the question of what's the risk and how can I do it safely? Is it not the person who does the work every day, right? And so when you start engaging those, and, and certainly over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen such a migration of integrating frontline employees into these conversations because I can go out and look at, at any issue environments and I'll identify a number of risks, right? If Mike were standing beside me, he's going to identify probably a number of the same ones I do, and he'll probably see some things that I don't. We could come up with a plan, right? And we'll work it and it'll look great. And then if we take it to the individual who actually does the work, they may look at it and go, absolutely can't do it because we don't have that perspective. And to me, it's, it's when you walk into those challenges. And just the example I gave before, the ones who were talking the most in the room were the individuals who were going to do the work. And they were asking the questions to the other groups going, okay, what can you do about this? And then they were answering those questions. And so it's such a great point, Merle, that you brought up because if we're going to really get down to nuts and bolts of how do we get more effective and we get better? go ask the person who does the job. They'll, they, they will likely have the answer or the answers that we need to go explore on a larger level for what do we do to make it better for them, make it safer for them, because they're the ones dealing with it day after day, not me. And Chris, what do you think that does to their inner psyche 
for them to be asked, for them to give their ideas compared to people above them coming in saying, do this, do this, do this. I mean, maybe it's obvious. Yeah. You know, if you think about acceptance, right? If you come in and you can tell me that I can't, right? Right. Or this is how you're going to do it. Right. And if that doesn't make sense with what you're trying to accomplish, then there's going to be a very natural resistance to it. Matter of fact, there'll even be people are going to be creative in figuring out ways to get around it because, you know, again, if you're the, the carpenter and you're swinging the hammer every day and you're building the thing and somebody comes in and tells you to do this and it doesn't work with what you're trying to accomplish, you're going to figure out a way around it. But to me, there, you know, if we truly believe that our greatest resource is our human resource, then we got to talk to them. we got to engage them. we got to ask them. And then to your point, when they're part of the solution, how much more accepting of the solution are they going to be? Right? Now, Chris, it's, it's not one of our Carnegie principles, but it's something we teach in leadership and that is people support a world they help to create. And when they're the creators, all of a sudden it's their baby and it's much more personalized, which makes such a huge difference. Yeah, it's such a great point because I think from an industry perspective, our industry, safety profession, I don't know that we're at seeing big step changes again, right? I mean, if you think about it, OSHA now knows who they are, right? If you look at their regulations, they're not making big sweeping changes in regulations. They're, they're adjusting, right? Even if you look at some of the exposure level things right there, they're adjusting exposure levels based on 20 plus years worth of information to be able to make better decisions. I mean, for Pete's sake, we, we can only make the fall protection level so low before it becomes ridiculous, right? So I don't think regulatory-wise, we're going to see big changes. I don't think industry-wise, we're going to see big step changes because, again, now that safety, if you just go back to 1971 when OSHA came into being, if you say, okay, that's the start. Now we're 50 years into this thing, right? We're smarter than we were, and we've made a lot of big step changes. But I think if we're going to make start seeing the next smaller step changes, it's when we start getting to that level, Merle. We start engaging our people in our conversations and going, okay, here's the challenge. Here's what we need to do. Here's the issue. Whatever the point of conversation may be, what do you think? And then I call it the leadership art of learning when to shut up and let them talk, right? Let them tell us what their true issue is so that then we have a more definitive problem to go solve versus a more hypothetical problem to try to solve. It goes back to the principle, be a good listener. Encourage other people to talk about themselves and what's important to them and what they believe. That's huge. Chris, even in our preliminary conversations, we heard you talk a lot about people issues and interacting with people. And one of the statements that I noticed that you made was make people your task. Could you build on that and tell us a little bit of how, not just regulation-wise, but how you've gotten into the people aspect of safety? Yeah, this has been 20 years ago now. And there was a, uh, if you work in a large organization, somewhere along the line, you're going to do a personality assessment, right? Whether it's Myers-Briggs or DISC or, you know, there's a number of them out there and they all have great benefits. I generally tend to lean more towards the ones that are a little bit more graphic in, in the output, right? And so there was this one that we did, it was called Personalysis. And, uh, and it gave you this, this you know, visual of kind of three states and where you were at. And so the facilitator, and I think this is another, just uh, when you have great facilitation of these kind of things, you get, you get learnings, not only organizationally, but individually. This facilitator was, was very was awesome as he went through this with me. He's like, you, you are task-oriented off the chart, literally. I went through. And he, and he asked me a question. He goes, have you ever had situations where someone has come to you and said, 
I saw you yesterday, you didn't acknowledge me or something like that. So yeah, I'd often I'll have somebody say, why are you mad at me or something like that? And I'll say, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I saw you yesterday and I, I said hello or I waved and, and you didn't, nothing. I was like, when did I see you? And it would say such and such time. And I would think back and I was like, oh, I was going. So wherever I was going and whatever I was doing was the only thing in my world at that time. And everything else was just not done. So that led to a lot of apologies, right? Because I certainly wasn't intending to do that. And so this particular facilitator goes, you know, sometimes you're going to have to make people a task and you're going to have to literally put on your schedule. And he said, what will happen is when you do that, that will become your focus and, and you will find the engagement to be better because you'll be, that will be the thing. And I'm, okay, fair point. How, how'd you do that? What's that look like? One was just slow down. I usually run at one speed, which is way too fast and which is not good, right? Because you have to Probably that back sometimes to be able to really kind of take in what's going on around you, right? And so part of it was just simply slow down. The other was actually scheduling, right? And so what I would do is build into my schedule times to, I would start showing up in break rooms where the teams were and just, you know, the first couple of times I did it, it was like, what is going on and why? But over time, it came to accept it because we just talked about things, right? There was no agenda. There was no, no anything. Things like them or work or? Yeah. Well, it actually, the more the conversations started off more work, right? Like, oh, the safety man's here, so what do we? And so there would be questions about this or that, and, and we would talk to them. But over time, it started to migrate from from work relationship to personal. And I remember, again, after a period of time of just doing that and going and hanging out with individuals and, and you know becoming part of the group, somebody walk in and say, hey, let me, let me tell you about my, my child's baseball or softball game over the weekend. And, and then, then all of a sudden, I found myself asking about it because – I would have heard it on Thursday or Friday the week before and come in on the next week and, and see them and go, hey, who won? And those, so those relationships started to develop, right? And, and, and it wasn't just somebody. It was, it was well, that was Bob or John or Susie or whoever. And you knew who they were, right? And then you start to understand more of their why. Even if you're not asking that question, you start to understand more of their why, which gives you another level to engage with them. Well, let me give you an example. It just came to mind of a, a story from our past that demonstrates that very well. I can't remember if it was a plant in East Tennessee or one in Kentucky. I'm going to go with the one in Kentucky that we were working at together. There was a particular issue I was there working with you on. You walked out in the plant and you said, hey, let's go talk to the people doing this and let's see what they have to say, right? So we were covering it with some really smart people, a bunch of engineers and a bunch of industrial hygienists and all these people, right? And Chris was, let's, let's, let's go out and talk. These guys are doing this job and let's, let's see what they can do, right? I've done that walk with many, many, many safety and health managers and professionals and whatnot. There's some people that will go out there, the people see them coming and they're like, oh, something must be wrong, right? Or they come up and they don't even know the workers' names, right? We walk up and Chris being out there wasn't anything unusual. It wasn't anything unusual at all. He walks up to these guys. We probably spent 20, 30 minutes talking about family and sports or whatever before we ever got to the issue because that's how Chris normally conducted himself. They didn't just see him when there was a problem. They saw him as part because they were a task and he made it part of their business now. And that's why he had that rapport with them. Chris, so some people would say, well, come on, man. Time is valuable. Get with it. Get to the point. How do you justify what you did there of talking to people? Does that make a difference? It's true, right? So there's always going to be some bias toward time. I mean, of course, you know, time is the great uncontrollable, 
the one thing that we'll never be able to figure out is how to make more minutes and more hours. So that's real, right? And I think part of it, we safety professionals have got to understand time is real, right? And time pressures are real and they're always going to be. To me, it becomes more just learning how to talk in questions and really asking the person, what is the thing nipping at their heels? Why is the time pressure what it is? And, and then again, it gets back to why, understanding the why, understanding what is the motivation, the, the pressure. And then once you know that, you should be able to help the individual work through or help them see where if we take 10 minutes now, it saves us an hour later, right? The other thing I try to do too is this thought just popped in my head is in years past, and certainly when I started in this business in, in 1990, Safety was considered a cost. I mean, flat out, we were dollars being spent that were necessary, but we were considered a cost. My goal is to, for organizations to see safety as an investment. And so if I invest X, so, so obviously, if you're going to say that, you're going to have to talk about what's the return on investment, right? So you have to be able to articulate that. And I think that's where the conversation stands. And it's really learning how to talk in questions, asking the individual the right questions to understand what's the pressure, what's the urgency, what's driving them, because there's something. Right. It may be somebody else or it may be some other organizational pressure, whatever it is. If you don't know what that is, you have no idea how to help them work through it. But when you understand that, then you can start talking about, the, to me, the investment. So if we take 10 minutes to work through this or whatever time frame right, is appropriate, it will likely save us this on the output. Or if we solve this problem today, we don't have to deal with this problem going forward. And so the benefit comes in that regard. And I found that that generally helps the conversation move forward, because if you're, again, if you're engaging the person and asking them, what's the motivation, what's the pressure, what's the urgency, what's whatever the question you need to ask is, then you're bringing them to you. You're engaging them in the conversation and you're not the no person anymore. And and they're like, okay, maybe I've got a resource here. Maybe I've got somebody that can help me. You're thinking about executive leadership. If you're talking in, in investment and return on investment, you're saying, if I solve the problem today, it saves us for the next 10 years, you know, in time, effort, energy, whatever. That's going to be a very natural conversation for any business leader. Because that's what most business leaders are talking about on any given day. To the point, Merle, that you made earlier, it's let somebody else do most of the talking. And that starts with learning how to talk in questions and go, help me understand and then finish that question. And then let them have the floor so that you get to now listen and figure out how you best engage with them. What I've heard you say Yes, taking a few minutes to get to know somebody, becoming genuinely interested in them, which is another principle. That investment of a few minutes will set the stage to bring a connection that allows you to lead them even more. It's tough to lead people by just walking in cold and just do this, do this. But you're asking questions instead of giving direct orders and drawing out from that. You brought up a thought, and actually it's a wonderful thought, which is why it made me smile. But I had a gentleman previously in my career. He is one of those natural people people. And I'm so envious of those types of people because they just have some natural ability to connect with people, right? His opening question in any conversation was, how are you doing? Every time I ever called that man, if I called him today, the first question that he would ask me is, how are you doing? And Chris, what's the root of that question? What's he really going for? He wants to know you. He wants to know the person. I will talk to him occasionally now. He will still ask me about things that we talked about or that were that was going on when we were together years ago. Right? This has been a number of years ago now. He's got this uncanny ability to remember, but he wants to know the person. And I've seen him with others as well. He would be asking them the same types of questions he'd be asking me, but specific to them. When he showed up, it wasn't like, oh, my word, what's he doing here? It was like, oh, okay. And then you knew you were going to have a conversation, right? 
you were eventually going to get to work and solving the problem, but he was going to ask you some questions about you first and your family or whatever. And it was such a realism to it. The realism and authenticity of um, he wanted to know about you. And I will say that he is one of the most effective safety professionals I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Another one of Dale's principles is make the other person feel important and do it sincerely, which is not just make them feel important so we can get something off of them, but do it with a sincerity. Sounds like what that person did, but it also leads to the idea of understanding the value of a person in humans. Talk to us a bit about that, Chris. Again, as I look at this journey that I've been on for 33 years now within this profession, and I look back starting many, many, many years ago now, and in our early, we were going to compliance our way towards safety. We were going to compliance our way to safety. We were going to make sure that that scaffold was absolutely correct, right? Not necessarily paying a lot of attention to what the person on the scaffold was doing, right? But we were going to make sure the scaffold was right. When we started realizing as a profession that our fundamental objective, our fundamental reason for being was taking care of people, we started getting a lot smarter. The value that every individual is valuable. I'm no more or less valuable than anybody else, regardless of my position, right? Because without our people, our businesses aren't going to be doing anything. And so it's incumbent that we, it's incumbent upon us as, to take care of them and to make sure that our organizations are set up to take care of them. And I think that when you look today in 2023 at what so many organizations are doing from a safety perspective, I mean, it's phenomenal some of the things that we see and just the growth. And I think it's rooted there, right? Because uh, if you remember, Mike, back when, when behavior-based safety became the thing, right, that was singularly focused. I won't get into the debates that many people are having now about the validity of behavior-based safety and all that it went through over that time span that it was kind of called that, even though we've shifted our terminology of it now. That was when we started to see the safety industry, though, start to really focus on people. And more importantly, how were people interacting with their environment? Well, it started with people. And the way I say it is this, and I've said this for, I think, my entire career, and I'll continue to say it, is when we talk about safety, we use that six-letter word, S-A-F-E-T-Y. And I had to spell it out to make sure I said the actual right number of letters there. What are we talking about? And I don't care what kind of safety you're talking about, airline, nuclear, occupational. At the end of every one of those conversations, the fundamental thing that we are talking about there is the protection of people. Shame on us for going so many years without realizing that, but good for us as a profession now that we see that. And and again, that should be, if it's not, it should be our North Star. It should be that centering thing that we can always, even when the days are going really bad, we can center ourselves as a safety professional and say, I'm going to go out in my work environment. I'm going to walk out there. I'm going to engage with people and I'm going to see if I can solve a problem. I think if we do that, we'll see the step changes of our industry come. Chris, I really appreciate the sharing of the why. So one of the big challenges, and since you've couple times alluded to that probably not as young a man as you were when I first met you. (laughs) Neither of us are. You know, you've got people now that you manage and you've had for years, right? You want them to have your why. You want them to have your passion. And I'm sure you do a great job of engaging them and surrounding yourself with really good people and whatnot. But as a safety leader, how do you pass that along to the people that you manage and Is it the why part you pass? Is it the soft skills? Is it the hard skills? But talk about building safety leaders around you. Yes, it's all, right? But what I don't try to do is force my why on anybody. I share my why, obviously, freely. There were a number of years that I was hesitant to do that, but now I talk about it freely. Because again, if it helps one person, then it's well worth sharing the story. 
to me, it's meeting where they are. It's understanding where they are and what they want to do. And again, that gets back to this entire conversation. We're engaging a person where they are and trying to help them understand. And so, yes, I, over the years, I've been blessed to work with many, many talented safety professionals. And I want to think that I've been able to help some progress in their career. And their while may or may not be like mine. It may be similar. But for whatever reason, somebody comes into this profession. I think it's, it's going to understand that, understand why you're in it, because it truly is a people organization. So it's a people business. That's what we're here for. And then understand what they're wanting to accomplish and help them reverse engineer to what they want to. And then help give them the path, right? Show them where, support them, and then let them do their job, right? I remember a gentleman I worked for in years past looked at me one day and he said, you've got to be okay. You've got to learn to be okay with letting yourself fail. More importantly, you've got to be okay letting your team fail. And when he said that, I was, it was one of those reacts like, what? what? Because fa- failure to me is a dirty word. But his point was so true. And I look back at the leaders that I've worked for that I would want to work for again. And they were the ones who let me fall on my face, but then were right there to pick me up, right? Dust me off and say, what'd you learn? And when I couldn't articulate what I learned, they could articulate it for me. And so I think it's allowing people to experience experiences. And I know that sounded weird, but right, they, we had the chance to do that. I mean, Mike, for Pete's sake, you and I dealt with some things that that was the first time many of us ever had to deal with them. And so we had to learn, right? And I don't know that we did it all right, but I think we came out smarter on the backside. And if we had to go do it again, we would probably do it a little bit differently. I didn't even think about that from a COVID perspective, right? We had no idea what we were doing when COVID started, but look at us now. And if we had that same challenge today, holistically, we would manage it completely differently. So we got smarter. But I think it's just meet the person where they are, understand what they want to do, and then do everything you can to help them build that path and then support them as they go down it, right? And tell them there are going to be times you're going to fall. You're going to fall flat on your face and it's going to be okay. I'll pick you up. I'll dust you off. We'll work through that. You'll, and then the next time you'll be better. And guess what? Somewhere along the line, you'll have that same conversation with somebody else and you'll let them fall and you'll pick them up and you'll dust them off and so forth. And I think what I have seen from doing that versus trying to tell people what they should do versus saying, what do you want to do? And even if it's, you know what? I don't want to be in this profession anymore. It's just not for me. So, okay, great. Knowing's half the battle. And let's talk about what you do want to do. And let's see if we can't help you achieve that. Chris, so related to that, in the interest and recognition of our presenting sponsors for this podcast, BCSP and Dale Carnegie, your CSP, talk to me about how you feel that that is important, professional certification for you and for the people that you manage. And also, man, you're a voracious reader. I mean, you're, you're reading the books and you're believing in going to conferences and seminars and taking courses like Dale Carnegie courses that really help expand your base of knowledge and skill, right? So talk to me about professional certification and things like Dale Carnegie and how that's helped you from a safety leadership and how that helps you with developing other safety leaders. Absolutely, right? So let's talk that two past Mike. Let's talk technical and then soft skills. So if you think about the technical side, right, there's something about being able to put initials behind your name that lends a level of credibility, right? So and I remember, yeah, I got my CSP in 2008 is when I got it. Matter of fact, uh, it's hanging right over here on the wall in front of me. That was a monumental task to be able to achieve that because it, it was an establishment of credibility within my industry. So I think that's important. It means I can exhibit the knowledge on a minimum standard that is recognized by the industry. Whether it's CSP, ASP, OHST, CHST, the host of different certifications that the BCSP now offers. That's great. We need to have that because, again, as we are taking care of our people and taking care of our company, a lot of the technical side is taking care of our company. 
we need to know those things and make sure that we can be compliant and so forth. If you flip over to looking at things like what's offered by the Dale Carnegie Institute, there's where I think the merging of these comes together. And it's, as effective safety leaders, we have to have, one, the technical base, but also, two, the soft skills to be able to understand how do we engage that potpourri of people that we're going to meet within our career field, right? That's going to be in the organization. that are going to have different backgrounds, experiences, et cetera, that from you. When understanding that people element and learning soft skills, how to engage with people, how to craft the conversation with somebody so that you can get them to talk to you is so important. The credentials establish us as who we are in our career field, right? And if you look at the different levels of certification, it says something about where we are in our chosen profession and whether it's in safety or any other field. The intangible, those soft skills that we can develop are what you know, those two roads converge, you know, and we're, we're good at both. That's when we become even more effective. And I think it helps us help our companies and it helps us help our people. I'm 100% with that. All right, Chris, man, this has been fantastic. But I want to push you a little bit because I know you're up for challenges. So we'd like to close out with three rapid fire questions. Because we want to give our audience some quick takeaways, quick bites from you. All right. So one at a time. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Give me your high moment in your career as a safety leader. When I had a supervisor at one of my locations come to me after I had done some training and say it worked and they had put it in play. Beautiful. All right. Give me your low moment in safety as a leadership. When I realized that I had spent way too much time developing a technical side and not the soft skills. Okay. All right, last one. I want a nugget. I want an absolute pearl gold nugget takeaway from you for tomorrow's safety leaders. Know why you're in this profession and then go execute. Perfect. Chris, we have found it to be a great joy to talk with you in thinking about your story. A tragedy that occurred in your life that you did not want, that we would not wish on any person you were able to take that tragedy and translate it into making a difference in the lives of many people, making a difference for them and for their families. So thank you very much for being a part of this podcast and speaking to folks about your big safety challenge. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. It's been an honor, my brother. Same here. Thank you also very much. Thank you. There were a lot of life lessons that we just got from Chris's life as he's talked. What's one thing that stood out to you at that time? His recognition of what he wasn't doing and then adjusting, you know, I thought that was great. The people being the task and how he first started his career when he was very on the hard skills. That passion was driving his hard skills, but then he was, he adapted, right? And he said, you know, I need to remember that people are the task and the value of people and listening and personalizing safety. And that to me was a real takeaway with this. And he really did take what was a challenging, devastating event of his life with his father's passing. And that was a springboard to find his purpose and his reason to make a difference in the life of other people. And we've all got those things that have happened to us. Great way for us to look and say, how can we use this to help other people? And for all of you, as you are facing your big safety challenges, how will you use the dynamic of leading people and guiding people to make a difference in their lives? Thanks for listening to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast produced in partnership by Dale Carnegie and BCSP. With your hosts, Dale Carnegie Master Trainer, Merle Heckman, and Mike Palmer, Principal at NSAFE. 
Executive produced by Charlie Eltringham. Supervising producer, Michael Escobedo. Audio engineering and editing from Jesse Gray and Giachi Liu. Editorial support from Tyson Matthews. Consulting producers are Colin Brown and Mark Sullivan. To have new episodes delivered directly to you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. If you would like to share your story of a safety leadership challenge you faced, email us at info at mybigsafetychallenge.com. See you next time.